I'm going to invite you to actually find two chapters uh, with me this morning, Luke chapter 24, and then Ruth chapter 1. So Luke, there in the New Testament, chapter 24, and then Ruth chapter 1. Ruth is, a, a, in comparison to some of the other books in the Old Testament, uh, rather brief. It's only got uh, four chapters in it, so it can be a little tricky to find. So if you're looking for Ruth, just look for uh, Judges, and, and then it's the book right after that. You'll find a book of Ruth. Uh, I shared this story a couple of Wednesday nights ago when uh, Abel was four years old. He, uh, he came up to church with me on a Sunday evening. I was going to preach that night, and, and he's, he's, he's my main man. You know, he, he's my partner, and we've been uh, doing some things around the church. And, and in preparation for the Sunday evening service, I, I asked him to take my Bible and go and place it on the pulpit, is what I'd asked him to do. And, and so about 6 o'clock, the service was beginning, and I came in and sat where I typically will sit and looked up, and my Bible was not here on the, on the pulpit. And so we were, we were um, really right about to start the service, and, uh, and I knew I would need my Bible. If there's ever a time I'm going to preach and I don't need my Bible, that's, a, that's bad news. So, so, so I needed my Bible, and so I looked down at his little 4-year-old face, and I said, well, son, where did you put my Bible? He said, I put it on the pulpit. And I said, well, son, this is the pulpit. And when I pointed to this is the pulpit, his eyes got really big. And I said, well, where did you put my Bible? Can you take it to me? So I started to follow him, and I walked out this door and up these stairs and walked right up here and looked down at the very center of the baptistry. There was my Bible laying down in the bottom of the baptistry. Now, I had a couple of questions. I kind of thought to myself, why in the world did he think that I needed my Bible in the baptistry? And then why did he think that was the pulpit? I said, well, this isn't the pulpit. He said, well, I thought this was the pulpit. I said, well, why did you think this was the pulpit? He said, well, you put water in it like a pool, and then you, and then you walk down the steps in it like a pit. I thought this was the, this was the pulpit. And, and I have to tell you, I found his answer to be incredibly satisfying. I thought that, that it's perfectly logical. It makes perfect sense that for a four-year-old mind that that would be the pulpit. When we open up the Old Testament, uh, if we're not careful, we can get some of the words a little bit wrong. The whole Old Testament is about Jesus. A hundred percent of the Old Testament is about Jesus. A hundred percent of the Bible is about Jesus. There are 66 books in the Bible. 39 of them are in the Old Testament. 27 of them are in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, Christ is predicted. In the Gospels, Christ is revealed. In Acts, Christ is proclaimed. In the Epistles, Christ is explained. And in the book of Revelation, Christ is expected. It's about Jesus from beginning to end. He truly is the Alpha and the Omega. So anytime we open up any portion of the Bible, we want to be able to see Jesus because it's about him. And that includes a book like Ruth, this remarkable story in the Old Testament. But we want to see that it's about it's about Jesus. If at any time you're reading the Bible and you don't see Jesus, you need, to look more, you need to look more carefully. That's, in essence, what Jesus is saying in Luke 24. If you'll look with me there, you'll recall we, we've studied this in detail already, and so we won't study it in detail again, but just to make uh, some passing references to it, of all the ways that Jesus could have chosen to spend his resurrection day. Do you remember this? When Jesus walks out of the tomb on that Sunday, how does he spend that day? And the answer is found here in Luke chapter 24 that Jesus chooses to spend his resurrection day by coming alongside some discouraged and uh, um, disillusioned disciples who had misunderstood his mission and they're limping their way spiritually, if you will, back to Emmaus. They're leaving Jerusalem. They said, we thought that he was the one to redeem Israel. You remember, they, they were thinking in terms of the Messiah of being some great political savior, Alexander the Great on steroids, who was going to come and drive the Romans out. And when Jesus came, he was the Messiah, but they misunderstood his mission and that led to their discouragement. And by the way, that'll still happen in your life today. If you misunderstand who Jesus is, what he's really promised to do, and what he's really accomplishing in the world. If you misunderstand that, particularly if you make their same mistake and think that he's here uh, initially here to, to build some sort of political kingdom on earth, you'll get disgruntled, discouraged, and frustrated. And so Jesus chooses to come alongside of them and, and begins to walk with them. And it says here in verse 25 of Luke 24, Oh, foolish ones. Now, parenthetically, I'll point out here, that there is a way to make that statement in the Greek language that would let us know that Jesus was speaking to two men. 
We're just told there's two disciples here, and then we were told one's Cleopas, and then, and then we don't get a lot of information on the second one. But I think there's a pretty good um, a hint here. Oh, foolish ones, not to weigh you down and belabor you with, 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 with the Greek language, but you know that the Bible was originally written in Greek. And so when Jesus says, oh, foolish ones, there would have been a way to say that, to say, oh, foolish guys, if you will. But that's not what he says here. He, he uses the term that's, that, that denotes it's, it's possible that this was a man and a, and a woman. And I find this pretty interesting that they're going to walk along the way and then they're going to go to, to their house, the man and the woman's house. And it doesn't take a, a stretch of the imagination to think that these two folks that Jesus is walking to Emmaus with are a married couple. And that's pretty interesting, isn't it? That Jesus, the day he comes out of the tomb, what he chooses to do is to take a walk with a husband and his wife because you remember what God loved to do pre-fall? He loved to come in the cool of the day to the garden and do what? Take a stroll, take a walk with a husband and his wife. It shows us that Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection has initiated the healing of creation. Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets, what of the prophets? All that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Now, notice what it says. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets. Now, what term would we use for that? Beginning with the Old Testament, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then, and then it goes on to say here, after, uh, look with me in verse 31, their eyes were opened. You'll recall at first they didn't recognize that it was Jesus. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. He vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us? When? While he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures. And that's where we get the title for this series of sermons, Burning Hearts. Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road while he opened up the scriptures their hearts were set afire when Jesus opened their eyes to who he truly is and then opened their minds to understand the scripture for what it really is so so our prayer is in these days that God would set our hearts on fire can I ask you just as we start if you were to think about your heart in those terms of of something that's on fire what would the condition of your heart be this morning would it be blazing flame uh, on fire for who Christ is? Or would it sort of be a little flicker? Or, or would it just be a stone cold, <laughs> no flame, no spark at all? The Bible says that our hearts are set afire when our eyes are open to who Jesus really is and the scriptures are open. And we need both. We're speaking metaphorically, so in a spiritual way, we need to be able to see spiritually. We need to have our eyes open. And then we also need to have the scripture open. Put it to you this way. What good would it be for a blind man to have his sight if the whole room was blacked out? And then what good would it be for the whole room to be lit up but the man to be blind? Do you see what I'm saying? You've got to have two things. You've got to have sight and you have to have something to see. You have to have vision and then you have to have something to focus on. And so Jesus is saying he opened up their eyes to see him clearly and then what to focus on. So do you have spiritual sight? Here's the test. Have you ever take a vision test? Go to the DMV and they got to test your vision or you go to the doctor. When, 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 you, when you have a big vision test, what's always the first letter? If you don't see the E, my friends, you're going to fail the vision test. You step, so, so just have it memorized at least. And then you see E and then there's, you know, the little, uh, you know I, used to be really, I used to have really, really good sight. I mean, you could about put the, the chart in the fellowship hall from here. I could see it. I couldn't see through the walls, obviously. You know what I'm saying. By the last time I took a vision, I could see the E, and I got about the fourth row in there, and then all of a sudden, is that a C or is that a G? But, but anyway, here's a vision test for you spiritually. You know what the big E is? Do you see Christ? When you open up your Old Testament and you begin to read in those pages, do you see Jesus? Jesus opened up their eyes, and then he opened up the Scripture. While he opened to us the scriptures. So we've got a match this morning. The match is called Ruth. In the book of Ruth, let's light this match and let's pray that God will set our hearts afire as we open up Ruth and see Jesus. Let's pray to that end. Father, I pray now for grace that you would take this remarkable book of Ruth and help us to see that, yes, it is an amazing love story. It is full of a 
It, it, it's an example of what a man should be as he enters marriage, what a woman should be as she enters marriage. But more than that, this is a picture of our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray now that we're on this side of Calvary, that you'd give us spiritual sight to look back on the glorious predictions that you made of who Christ would be. So now, having the full revelation of your word, that for new covenant believers, followers of Jesus, this picture of the Redeemer in Ruth would set our hearts aflame. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of my goals this morning is to show you that Jesus can be seen in the the great big hallmark events of the Old Testament. For example, two weeks ago, we looked at the Exodus event. It's the most referenced Old Testament event in both the rest of the Old Testament and in the New Testament. It's sort of the hallmark event of the, of the Old Testament. And we see as those uh, children of Israel pass over the Red Sea on dry ground that it's a picture of Jesus. If you'll recall, we put it this way. That, that event teaches us that salvation is getting out of bondage by grace through a mediator in order to be made holy. Do you remember that? That was two weeks ago. So, so this is real baseline stuff here. If you're not getting out of bondage, you've got to ask the question is if you've had salvation come to your life. How does salvation come? Salvation is getting out of bondage by grace. They didn't build themselves a bridge over the Red Sea. The Red Sea was opened up for them, not on their own merit, but because God did something that they could not do. The army of the Egyptians is coming against him. The Red Sea is behind them. They have no hope until God, by grace, steps in and uses a mediator. Moses is a picture of Christ who is to come as he stands between God and the people and their enemies. And then a way is opened up where there was no other way, and they crossed over. But once they crossed over, now they're out of bondage, but it's just not out of bondage. Now they're to be made holy, right? Does that have a picture for your salvation? It is the picture of your salvation if you're a believer in Christ. Well, that was two weeks ago, so I won't preach that sermon again. But in a hallmark moment like the Exodus, you can see Christ. And, and, and then in a smaller book, you just look at the book of Ruth. You just flip your page one time and it's over, right? So, so my goal is in the huge details, in the big E, if you will, there's Christ. And then, and then in the little in the details, if you will, here's Christ. So let's read together here in Ruth chapter, chapter 1, beginning in verse number 1. We're going to pick up that this story takes place at a certain time. It involves specific people, but those specific people are living in a specific time and place and circumstance. So we want to appreciate a little bit about what's going on in their lives uh, as we build up to seeing Christ. Ruth chapter 1 verse 1 tells us when these things were taking place. It says, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife, and his two sons. Now that's one verse, but it tells us a lot of things that we're going to need to know if we're going to be able to see Christ in this book. The first thing is it tells us a specific time these things take place. Where are we on our redemptive history timeline? We're in the time of the judges. So this is well after Exodus. This is, this is, this is after Joshua has led the people into the promised land. This is after Joshua has, has died. So we're past Moses and Joshua's period of leadership into a period that we call the judges. Now, it's important to know what kind of time period Judges was. So if you're in Ruth, just flip back one page. Just flip back one page to the previous book, Judges. In Judges chapter 21, verse 25 is the last verse in the book of Judges. And it says, in those days there was no king in Israel. And here's the description of those days. Everyone did what was right in accordance with the word of God. It's not what it says. Everyone did what was right as Moses had taught them. That's not what it says. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, it's very difficult to not become like the culture around you, right? It's sort of the water that you swim in. It's the air that you breathe. Uh, to, To not think as they do, to react as they do, to make decisions as they do. But God has always necessitated thinking, believing, acting, living, deciding differently for his people than for all the people that surround his people. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, this is not the major point for this morning, but it is worth noting 
that that is a description that could be used of the United States of America in 2015. That is the air we breathe. Everyone does what's right in their own eyes. Who are you to tell somebody else what is right and what is wrong? Now, somebody can say that to you, but I'll tell you, it's a whole different game when you say that to him. And that's the essence of sin. God, who are you to tell me what to do? You know who he is to tell us what to do? He's God. (laughs) In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So it's a specific time, and then there's a specific problem. There's a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two, two sons. Now, um, in, in the same way that we've, we've studied this together, when Jesus does physical miracles, they often teach spiritual truth, right? When, when we see Jesus heal blind men and women in the scriptures, it's, it's, ta- it's talking us, yes, it's a real physical, amazing miracle, but it teaches us deeper spiritual truth. If, if people are spiritually dead but physically alive, one of the only ways that you can teach them spiritual truth is to do something in the physical world. Does that make sense? And so Jesus will heal a man's physical eyes to point to the greater miracle of giving you spiritual sight. And that's what he often does in the, in the Gospels. In the Old Testament, God uses geography. How many of you like geography? How many of you like maps? I just love to pour over maps. I don't know if anybody else does. I love to see where things are and, and to see the outlay of the land and where the mountains are and where the rivers. And so, so, so in the Old Testament, God often teaches us about spiritual conditions on the basis of geography. That's why. The, what's the hallmark event? They got out of Egypt a place of bondage, walked across a place that no man of his own could walk across the Red Sea on dry land in order to get to another place, the promised land. And that teaches us about spiritual truth. And the same thing's going on here. There's a famine in the land and a man of Bethlehem. Now, you might, we, we, we can't pick up, the, up on this real readily in English. We would if we were reading in the Hebrew. Bethlehem has a literal meaning. It's a real place, but it actually means the city of bread. That's what Bethlehem literally means. So you see there's a little bit of irony going on here. The city of bread has no bread. There's a famine there. Famine in those days was... I don't know if any, if any of us have, have experienced quite what a famine like this would be like. Now, I know many of you were alive in the days of the Great Depression, of unprecedented hardship in our own country but but here's a man he's got a wife and he's got two sons and there's a famine that means here's point number one as we go through we're going to have four points there's a crisis it's a crisis crisis circumstance comes along there's a man in Bethlehem in Judah and he went to sojourn in the country of Moab he and his wife and his two sons The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went to the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So in our opening scene here in the book of Ruth, we, we have a crisis, have an absolute crisis. Now, if the geography is important, Bethlehem's the city of bread. They go to a specific place. It's, it's Moab. Moab in the Old Testament is one of the most wicked places that there is. And we won't go into all the detail and all the background, but you just know this, that Moab is a wicked place. It's an ungodly place. It's a place that they do not submit to God. They do not recognize God for who he is. They have all sorts of, 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 of false gods that they bow down to. So, so if you're tracking along to me, with me, when a crisis comes, Elimelech makes a decision. He decides to leave the land of promise and to go where? To go to Moab. We're, we're going to go over here to, to Moab. Now we don't want to be too hard on Elimelech because... Because it's a crisis situation. What husband in here, what dad in here would not uh, uh, endure great uh, suffering and hardship in order to provide for his wife and to provide for his, his sons? Famine comes to the city of bread. Often when everyone decides to do what is right in their own eyes, 
God is obligated to reveal our limitations and our inadequacies for our own good. Can I say this one more time? Because, because it might be helpful and prudent for us to understand these truths. Often when everyone decides to do what is right in their own eyes, God is obligated to reveal our limitations and inadequacies to us for our own good. What's an inadequacy and a limitation? We don't control the rain and the rain's just stopped. And we're all here doing what's right in our own eyes, but God controls the rain and the rain stops falling. Crops start failing. Economies start collapsing. Crisis comes. And Elimelech makes a decision. He decides to leave the the land of promise and to go to Moab. He thinks life will be better for his family in Moab. And at least initially, it seems that his original decision was to go for a short period of time based on verse 1. He went to sojourn there. Sojourn means we're just going to be there for, for a little while, and it's not our permanent residence. But then we get down here a little bit later on, and, and it says that they remained there. They went to the country of Moab. What does it represent? It represents a wicked place where they don't submit to God, and, and they remained there. I want you to notice a few things about this decision. I don't want to make too much of an argument from silence. But Elimelech decided Moab offered life to him and his family. You will notice that his decision was not made on the basis of much prayer. His decision was not the result of godly counsel. He, he made it for this reason. Most likely he was afraid and he was hungry. Now what we have been told from Ruth is that he's alive during the time of Judges. And what happens in the time of Judges? Everyone does what's right in his own eyes. So, so, so you see, he makes a decision because it was right in his own eyes. Now, I can tell you with pretty good authority that there was no time in the Scripture that God ever said, I need you to go to Moab. Moab was the place that God said, don't go there. Don't, don't plant your family there. Don't raise your children there. He went to sojourn there. He went for a short-term visit. And just like Lot who increasingly got closer and closer and closer to Sodom, he remained there. It's a picture for us of what sin is like. We, we make a decision to go to Moab thinking that it will bring us satisfaction, fulfill our hunger, help our families. And our intention is always not to stay there very long. We just got to make ends meet, and, and then we remain there. And what ultimately comes in Moab? Did you read it? What comes? He died there. And that would have been tragic enough if in this crisis, this point of more in crisis, is if he just died there. But that's not all that happens. What else happens? His sons die there. Can I give you a sober word? I'm not trying to be overly dramatic. But it's an absolute falsehood to think that my own sin only affects me. It's not true. It's not true. And, and can I just say an appointed reference to husbands and dads? The decisions you make have great effect on your children. Now this question for you is, have you ever been to Moab? Not not geographically. Uh, Moab's over in in, in the Middle East. But, But have you ever made a prayerless decision to put down your stakes somewhere else? You know what? We all have. We've all been to Moab. We've all, we've all set up our tent. We've all pitched our tent, if you will, in Moab. We've all made decisions like this. We've all been impatient with God. In this moment of crisis, his heart is revealed. Crisis doesn't so much build character as reveal character. In a crisis situation, Elimelech, without godly counsel, without prayer, doing what was right in his own eyes, he said, maybe Moab will offer us life. Some of us are currently in Moab. Some of us are living there right now. And you say, man, the bread's pretty good. The bread lasts for a day, but death is on the horizon. I just want to tell you that, the truth from God's word. And some of us may not be in Moab right now, but you're starting to feel its pull. Some of us are making travel plans for, for Moab. You know, you know that Moab is pulling on your heartstrings when you have thoughts like this. Have you ever said, I know God's word says this, but... Now let me tell you, that's the pull of Moab. I know God's word says this, but I'm going to do what's right in my own A burning heart burns up all the strings attached to to Moab. God has said, this is the land of promise. And can I tell you, even in the land of promise, sometimes in your life, 
famines come. Can I just tell you that? Famines come even to the land of promise. Dry spells come even to the land of promise. Hardship and suffering and difficulty come to to this land we're living in now. Now we're headed to a place where all that's done. But in this life, there's seasons that you'll have that are difficult. And you think Moab offers life, but it's an illusion. The journey to Moab is filled with false hope. Anybody hear what I'm saying? Can't you see Elimelech and his wife Naomi and his two sons as they pack up to leave for Moab? Elimelech assures his family, hey, things are going to be better there. And, and Elimelech leads his family on sort of the opposite course of the Exodus. The Exodus had been God led him there. And now Elimelech says, now well, we're going to go back to Moab. When Elimelech leaves Bethlehem, he's forfeiting his land. He's putting his greatest blessing in jeopardy. He forsakes his blessing in pursuit of another place where he thinks things will be better. And that's another definition of sin, by the way. Forfeiting God's greatest blessings. Because you think, in your own eyes, something else will be better. Now again, you'll notice that this decision is not made on the basis of much prayer. Not the result of godly counsel. He was hungry. And your temporary appetite will lead you to make some foolishly, and in some cases eternally foolish, decisions. You remember Esau, right? Forfeited his birthright. What? For something to eat. Elimelech leads his family to Moab. Why? Because they're hungry. I tell you this, it'd be better to starve in Bethlehem than have plenty to eat in Moab. And if you'll be patient, you won't starve. Amen? In a moment of crisis, when his convictions are tested, Elimelech leaves the land of promise and sets out for Moab. Better to hunger in the land of blessing than to pursue food in Moab. Moab always makes promises it can't keep, and God never does that. Amen? Now, um, I don't know if you know this about me, but when I was younger, I was an uh, um, amateur movie maker. When I was about eight or nine years old, my, my mom and dad bought a video camera. I'm talking about the old kind, the VHS tape kind. Anybody know what I'm talking about? The kind that if you held on your shoulder for over 10 minutes, began to feel like it was 100 pounds. And so, so um, I, don't, I don't know if I should say this publicly. At my mom's house, there are dozens and dozens of videotapes of movies that I made growing up. I, I watched one the other day, and it was awful. I decided to make a Western. And in the first scene, the, the video camera pans up, and there I am in my... Now, listen, I, it's not like I was 18. I was like 9, so don't get that image image in your mind and I had my cowboy hat on and right behind me a car drove now you want to talk about you want to talk about historical inaccuracies here I am my western and the car drives by but but there are times that I still have a little bit of amateur filmmaker in me and and so we're going to just do a kind of a silly illustration if you will is is one of the things I think about is if and I wish they would do this by the way because they don't really make good movies anymore if they just you know, use some scriptural stories to, to, to put on film, is, is we just came through the crisis situation. And if, and if this were a film, can, can you begin to picture Naomi? Here's something you need to know about Naomi, because not only is geography important in the Bible, names are important. And Naomi is a name that means pleasant. That's what her name means, pleasant. And now, thing, now all of a sudden, everything's unpleasant. So, so, so in my mind, I'm, if I'm making this film, no cars in the background, because that would be historically inaccurate. Here's Naomi, and she's by three grave sites. And there's two ladies in her background. And, and one of the things I think about is what kind of soundtrack I'd use. And Jay's going to help me. We're going we're to play a track. And I just want you to hear it so you kind of get the emotion of what's going on. You can go in and play the song. See the scene? Now I'm making my movie. Y'all are my, y'all are my audience. Y'all are my test case. You see her? Moab promises life. What has she found? Death. She's standing there. It's been a crisis situation. Elimelech had led his family with such promise. We're going to go to Moab and we're going to have food. making the movie the soundtrack that I'd have play because now it's it's not worked out it's not what they thought was going to happen anybody that's in the room today if God would give you grace and you're in Moab right now you'd recognize this is true there's not life to be found in Moab there's nothing but death 
just a matter of time. So there's a crisis situation, but I want you to notice, here's a little bit of good news, the story's not over yet. But this is how we have begun. They went to the country of Moab, and they remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Miss Pleasant, died. She was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. And both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So our opening scene, there it is. And we bring the soundtrack down because we're about to fade into the, to the next scene. But that's what's going on. Scene number one is a scene of crisis. Scene number two is a scene of what we'll call of, of chaos. We've gone from crisis to chaos. Naomi means pleasant, and Moab has proven to be anything but pleasant. Elimelech dies in Moab. Elimelech, listen to me, dies in the very place he intended to go just for a little while. Friends, do not die in your sins. You have a pattern in your life a sinful pattern in your life, and you keep thinking it's going to bring you life. There's breadcrumbs on the way to Moab, but once you get there, it's nothing but death. Maybe you've got an idol of materialism, an idol of lust, an idol of appearances. You're just always worried about what everybody else thinks, an idol of performance, and you keep returning to that idol, and he'll give you a little crumb. And at first you thought you were just going to be there for a little while, and now you look back over the course of your life, and you say, man, I've been in Moab for years. Your brief trip has turned into permanent residence. Moab offers life. Moab brings death. Somebody needs just to hear me say this from God's word. Don't waste your life looking for life in Moab. So we've seen two locations so far. We've seen the city of bread, Bethlehem, and then we've seen Moab. First, they were in Bethlehem, but made plans for Moab. And now we're second in Moab. So, 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 Just because you've gone to Moab doesn't mean you have to stay in Moab. Look look what it says here, Ruth chapter 1, verse 6. Then she arose. Naomi arose with her daughters-in-law. What's she going to do? To return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. The Lord had brought food where they had been impatient to stay. Do you see? If they'd have just waited, God was going to bring them food. So, so she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Notice the geography. Now try to picture these three, three women in your mind. Imagine if someone, I'm not, good, I'm not a good artist, but imagine if somebody painted a scene and they hung it in one of these great uh, uh, artist galleries that we've got in our, in our country, maybe somewhere up like Washington, D.C. or something like that. And, and, and here's, the, here's the title that I would give. Now, again, I've got a little movie director in me and I've got a little painter in me. Although I can't paint, I'd, I'd, I'd be willing to give the title. Here's what I would title this painting of three women. Now, they're coming up out of the land of Moab. Did you notice? But they're not yet to the land of Judah. So, so here's what I would give. They're on this road. There's the three ladies. And I'll just call this the land of confusion. Or the land of the in-betweens. You see, they're, they're, not, they're getting up out of Moab. Do you see it? But they're not yet to Bethlehem. Oh, God's so good to give us geographical pictures of spiritual conditions because this is where some people try to live. See, I know that Moab's not a place of life, but I don't know if I want to go to Bethlehem. And so you try to live your whole life in the in-betweens. And we're going to read together, there's a very important point to be made. So one, point number one, there was a crisis, there was a famine. Number two, that led to them going to Moab, which brought, number two, brought chaos. And then we got a a third point. Third point is clarity. There's going to come a point of clarity. But Naomi, verse 8, said to her daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you've dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed him, and they lifted up their voices, and they wept. Do you see the three of them clinging to each other and weeping? And they said to her, No, we will return to you and to your people. 
But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way. I'm too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night who would bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it's exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. She said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. So here's the point I want to make in the geography here. This land of confusion, this land of the in-betweens. No one can be a permanent resident in the land of the in-betweens. You hear this? You've got to see this. You're either going to be in Moab or you're going to be in Bethlehem. You're never going to stay long in the land of confusion, the land of the in-betweens. There's three women. Uh, uh, Naomi is headed back to to Bethlehem. She's got two daughters-in-law who are married to her two sons who have now died. And as they're going back, they get to this point. I don't know the mile marker. I can't tell you the exit number. But they get to this point of a point of clarity is the important point. One of the daughters, she initially says, I'm going to go with you to Bethlehem. Isn't that what it says? We will return with you. But then the more steps they take to Bethlehem, you see it? The more hesitant her steps become. And she's like Lot's wife, looking back over her eye at Sodom and said, I don't know if I really want to leave there or not. And a moment of clarity comes. And all of us in this room have got to come to this point. Either we really are going to go to Bethlehem or we're going to stick back in Moab. See, your sister-in-law has gone back. Naomi says, I have got to get up out of here to go, to go with her. When you aim to get out of Moab, can I give you a couple of practical suggestions and applications? When you aim to get out of Moab, not everyone makes the trip with you. Not everyone makes the trip with you. Some might even think that they're going to go with you. Not everyone's going to make the same decision that you make. Not everyone is going to agree with you that you've got to leave Moab. And the land of the in-between, Moab and Bethlehem, can never be anyone's permanent residence. A lot of people try to live there. They have one foot in Moab and one foot in Bethlehem. And that's sort of like, have you ever done this? you got one foot on the dock and one foot on the boat, and the boat begins to leave. You can't stay there long. Yeah, you ever got one foot up on the train and one foot on the ground, and then the train begins to leave? You can't stay there. And you can't stay here in this land of confusion. You must decide. And oh, glory, hallelujah, we get one of the great pictures of repentance in all the Bible right here. Because Ruth decides. Ruth comes to a point of clarity. But Ruth said, verse 16, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. From where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. When you die, where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. You have to decide. I find it pretty interesting that Naomi tries to talk Ruth out of going to Bethlehem. Isn't that interesting? Uh, Maybe this is how we should witness at times. Instead of twisting someone's arm to follow Jesus, maybe we should try to talk them out of it instead. (laughs) Because here's the reality. Whenever God is doing work in somebody's life, you cannot hold them back. Now, now we've all been in places and situations and circumstances where a preacher like me in a place like this begs and pleads and begs and pleads. Come to Jesus. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. I'll twist arms. We'll wait longer. Now, I'll tell you this. With full assurance in the word of God, when we open up an invitation, if God's really doing a work at you, wild horses could not hold you back from responding to faith in Christ. Amen? Now, Naomi says, Ruth, Ruth, you might want to think about this. You might want to consider the cost. And Ruth says, do not urge me to leave you. He who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. Orpah, sorry, you're looking back, not fit. But Ruth, notice how... The content of what Ruth says and how it's all encompassing about her life, where she'll live, where she'll go, who her people will be, who her God will be, where she will die, where her hope is, and nothing's going to stop her. 
I'm very wary of trying to beg and plead someone into following Jesus in the sense of trying to coerce them into the decision. It's sort of like begging and pleading a blind person who has recovered their sight to look at the sunset. I mean, what else would they do? It's like begging and pleading Lazarus to come out of the tomb. Hey, if he was dead and alive, what else is he going to do but walk out of there? Now, last week I did, a, I, I did a wedding. Can you imagine me standing at the front of the auditorium begging and pleading for the bride to come down the aisle? Wouldn't that be odd? I mean, we're standing up there, and they begin to play the song, and everybody stands, and the bride's at the back, and I hear I am say, would you please come? Would you please come? Raise your hand if you'd like to come. No, no. The door swing, swung open. I was standing there. The groomer was right beside, and then without one moment of hesitation, she started walking down that aisle, and she kept coming till she stood there. You know what she was saying to the groom? Your people are going to be my people. Where you, where you lodge, I'm going to lodge. Where you go, I'm going to go. Your God, my God, same God. Where you die, I'm going to die. This is why marriage, rightly understood, is a picture of the gospel. And now right here we see one of the clearest pictures in all the Old Testament of repentance. Repentance means leaving behind the old life and taking hold of the new life in Christ. Ruth is doing two things simultaneously. She's leaving somewhere and she's going somewhere. Her determination is the opposite of what Elimelech's had been. Elimelech left Bethlehem to go to Moab looking for life and he found death. Ruth wants to leave Moab and go to Bethlehem to find life. Ruth is done with Moab and believer in Christ, you need to be done with Moab too. Stop taking your day trips to Moab. She's done with the land of the in-betweens. How do I know that? Verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. You need to go on until you get to Bethlehem. Stop with this two steps forward, two steps back nonsense of the land of the in-betweens. Get on, get yourself on to Bethlehem. When they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? You see, uh, a real practical application. If you've made your way to Bethlehem, other people are going to realize it and recognize it and know it. They're not going to scratch their heads and say, now, are they still in Moab? Of course they're not in Moab. They're in Bethlehem. You need to live your life in such a way that people aren't confused about where your residence is. The women said, is this Naomi? Her appearance has likely changed, weighed down by grief and sorrow. And notice what she says. She says, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Naomi means pleasant. Mara means bitter. Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me pleasant? Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Oh, this is dangerous ground, my friends. Dangerous ground. There are times in the Bible when we see a person's name changed. For example, Jacob becomes Israel. Abram becomes Abraham. Jesus gives Simon the name Peter. But in each of those instances, it was God who changed the person's name. It was God who says, you were this and now I'm going to call you that. But, but in this case, Naomi decides to rename herself. In, in the same way that it was never God that told Elimelech to go to Moab, God did not tell Naomi to change her name to Bitter. God did not say, hey, Miss Pleasant, I want you to rename yourself Bitter. Have you given yourself a name that God never gave you? I mean this with some humility, but also with some authority. We don't have the right to change our own names. She's playing a dangerous game here. She's decided to, she's decided to interpret God through the prism of her circumstances. C- circumstances that, that God would, would not have said go to Moab, and now she's gone to Moab, and now she's using her experience in Moab to say something about God. This is a dangerous game that people play all the time. Have you given yourself a name God did not give you? You rename yourself bitter? You rename yourself forsaken, alone, unforgiven, worthless, forgotten, unwanted? Hey, my friends, you better get your name in Bethlehem and not in Moab. And you better get yourself a name from God and not try to name yourself. Names are important. Naomi thought her identity had changed in Moab. But God's going to show her something that you, she needed to know and you need to know. Her true identity is not to be found in Moab. It's to be found in Bethlehem. 
So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, returned from the country of Moab. Okay, so a little movie director in me again, okay? So we're going to come to our concluding scene for this episode. We've got another episode we'll have next week. So this is a series and not just a standalone episode. So, so, so here's the movie director in me. You, you saw Elimelech and um, Naomi, thank you, Pleasant, and their two boys walking down a road to Moab. So if I'm a movie director, I got my lens is on that road again. But instead of walking in the direction of Moab, now we got two women. We got Naomi stooped with grief and despair, and we got Ruth determined to go with her. And now they're coming down that same road. And, and I, oh man, you just got to love the Bible. What's the last verse there in Ruth chapter 1? Because here's my movie director. I've zoomed in on them, then I'm going to zoom out. And they returned to Bethlehem. I want to get it exactly right. They came to Bethlehem. Just when did they come? They came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Do you see it? You see it? They, they, they'd left because there's no more bread. They're coming back. And what's, come, what's just popping up out of that ground? Now, I don't know agriculture from much of anything, but, but the beginning of the barley harvest, that, here's all this bread that's come out of the ground. And, and uh, so, so, so movie director Brandon, I'm going to pan out from, from uh, Ruth and Naomi. I'm going to pan over to these barley harvest fields. You see them? We're all about the imagery here. Here's the barley harvest coming. And I'm going to keep panning until I've got, got my lens now over here towards Bethlehem. And then I'm going to begin to zoom in. And uh, I'm going to get Chris Tomlin to help me because we need a soundtrack. So there track number two. Love. All right. So now we're zooming in a little bit. And there's somebody standing there. And we've got to get to chapter two. Remember, we haven't seen the whole picture until we've seen Jesus. Have you seen Jesus yet? Ruth chapter two, verse one. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband worthy of the clan of Elimelech whose name was say it with Boaz so now we're going to pan in and as the, as, the, as the screen gets a little bit closer you see a man standing there and this man is faithful he's strong he's patient he's kind he probably has a little bit of that barley harvest in he's got it he sees this a good crop and this whole field it belongs to him now everything that Elimelech had forsook and forsaken on his way to Moab is now, <laughs> they've lost it. Naomi's lost it. That's why she says, I'm bitter. And there's only one person that can give it back to her. And that's this guy Boaz. Now they haven't met him yet, but you've been told, you and I the audience, there's a guy that's there. You see him? You see him? Because then movie director Brandon zoomed into Boaz. This might be a little, uh, I'm not that great at movie making, but just hang with me. Now you've seen him, and, and now I'm going to, Pan up again, and I'm going to panorama over here down to this little village, this little village we've been talking about the whole time. A place called Bethlehem. Right? Bethlehem. They're walking their way to Bethlehem, and Boaz is a picture of somebody else who's coming to Bethlehem. Amen? Somebody else is coming here, and, and, and Naomi's been in the naming business. When this baby shows up in Bethlehem, God's in the naming business too. And it's God who's going to be born. And he says, I want you to name him Jesus. He's going to save the people from their sins. So let's use some Ruth language. Then you go in and bring down the music because the credits have started rolling. But don't turn off, don't turn the channel yet. When, when, when Naomi went to Moab, her story's not finished. God's saying, you can come on back. You can come back to Bethlehem. And, and you know what this baby born in Bethlehem is going to say? He says, I'm the bread of life. Bread's not to be found in a place. My friends, bread's to be found in a person. His name is Jesus. Now, here's big old take-home point. Do you like simple take-home points? Here it is. Here's, where, here's how we see Jesus in Ruth. We'll talk a little bit more about Boaz next week. But you've got enough information to know that Boaz is a picture of Jesus who's going to come to the city of bread. Jesus is the bread of life. Naomi has given herself the name Mara. I'm going to go on and tell you by the end of the book, she's not calling herself that anymore. She's 
she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab. Now notice how the Bible says it, that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was to return to the land of Judah. Here's the big take-home point. Jesus redeems us to life even after we have made decisions leading to death. Jesus redeems us to life even after we have made decisions leading to death. Stand together. We want to enter our time of invitation. Here's a time of invitation. And just like, just like we saw here that, that, uh, that Naomi could not talk Ruth out of making a decision. When it comes to invitation, if the God's at work, the Spirit of God's at work, the Word of God's been proclaimed, Christ is drawing men and women to himself. There's not a lot of arm twisting that's got to go on. Amen. So the invitation is going to be wide open. If you're in Moab, here's the invitation. Get yourself to Bethlehem. If you're in the land of the in-betweens, resolve and recognize right now you can't stay there. Get yourself to Bethlehem. If you're in Bethlehem and you're hearing the, the, the travel plans of Moab and their advertising and their marketing campaign, resolve yourself to stay in Bethlehem even if a famine should come for a season. If you've made a decision that has led to death in your life, do not believe that just because you've gone to Moab, you've got to stay in Moab. Let's pray together. And then you respond, you walk, you do whatever you have to do to grab a hold of God and say, wherever you go, I'm going to go. Your people, my people. I'm not going to die in Moab. I'm going to go to Bethlehem because that's where Jesus is. I'm going to get myself to Bethlehem and hold fast to the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger again. Oh God, I pray that we see Jesus in Ruth and it sets our hearts afire. And I pray that those flames burn any strings we've got attached to Moab. God, we live in a day when everyone wants to do what's right in their own eyes. We pray that, that we know that that mentality leads to Moab and leads to death. We don't want to do what's right in our eyes. We have the humility by your grace to confess we need, to, we need to do what's right in your eyes. Thank you that Jesus has come. And even when we make decisions that lead to death, Jesus can redeem to life. In Jesus' name, amen.